welcome to episode 4 pay-per-view where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. If someone said to me, give me two books that would show the direction we're going in and where we already are to a certain extent, I would say George Orwell's 1984 and Susanna Collins' Hunger Games. The first two are relevant to stories I'm going to cover today. Also, I would mention Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. But I mention the first two, as I say, because they're relevant to today's pay-per-view. I'm going to start with the story in the Daily Mail. And why I say they're relevant will become clear as I go along. In terms of what the books had that is relevant to pay-per-view this week, 1984 focused on the control of information and surveillance. And Hunger Games had the three-tier society where you've got the elite living in beyond imagination, living in mega, mega luxury, and the people living in mega, mega poverty with their only chance of survival dependent on whether they do what authority says and do the jobs that authority tells them they have to do, or else they have no access to money and therefore no access to anything else. And the, the only tier in between the elite and the people was law enforcement, a vicious, brutal, tyrannical law enforcement working on behalf of the elite. And I'm going to start today with the story in the Daily Mail. Britain pays retirees the worst state pension in the developed world with a basic payout of £122.30 a week. Britain pays retirees the worst state pension of any country in the developed world, analysis is found. The basic payout of £122.30 a week is the least generous in the West, worth just 29% of average earnings. And last night, former Pensions Minister Ross Altman warned the situation could get even worse. Government projections suggest that for those now under 30, the age when they can claim a state pension will have to be raised to 70, while future payments could be cut even further to avoid needing massive hikes in national insurance, Baroness Altman said. The league table revealing Britain's pension shame is compiled by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, which analyses the world's industrialised nations. Out of all the countries compared, Britain comes bottom, even behind poorer nations such as Chile, Poland and Mexico. While the UK state pension is worth just 29% of average earnings, in France the equivalent figure is 74.5%. Germany's state pension is worth 15.5% of average earnings, while in the USA it is 49.1%. The most generous state pension in the world is in the Netherlands, where the payments are slightly higher than average earnings. Baroness Altman warned that despite a recent overhaul to the pension system, payments will need to be cut further to avoid massive tax rises in the future to pay for it. She said, we are one of the world's leading economies, but our support for the oldest in society is not fit for purpose. In April 2016, major reforms to the UK state pension were supposed to have made the system affordable for the future, reducing its generosity. Beyond the 2030s, the new state pension will be lower than the old system for most people and the lowest paid, predominantly women, will lose significantly from the new system. Despite this, the government has been advised that the costs of paying state pensions will soar so much over the next 20 years and beyond that further cuts can be required. The article goes on. From later this year, the state pension age for women will rise from 63 to match men at 65 and will reach 66 for both by 2020. The government's economic forecaster is the Actuaries Department, believes it will become 70 in the 2050s and 71 in the 2060s. This would mean that anyone aged 30 or below will not get their state pension until they are 70, while those under 20 will have to wait until they are 71. Baroness Altman added 
the government actually believes that just funding the UK's exceptionally low state pension will require reducing payments in future or dramatic tax rises. Policymakers face difficult decisions and are also likely to need to increase the state pension age further. The former pensions minister called on the government to do more to address the crisis, including making private pensions more attractive so that more people are willing to pay a portion of their wages into their own fund. To avoid burdening younger generations with significant tax rises, it is vital that more is done to boost private pension saving, she added. Auto-enrolment is a good start, but the pensions industry needs to attract more customers to pay more into their pensions. Another story here, also in the Daily Mail. The dementia sufferers stripped of funding and turfed out of care homes. How health experts cruelly change their minds on who's in need with devastating consequences. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's sufferers are being stripped of vital care funding and turfed out of their nursing homes by cash-strapped local health authorities. Some of those affected cannot walk, talk and are incontinent. A money mail investigation found that about 21,000 people who suffer from severe conditions are being put through gruelling reassessments of their care needs every year. If they fail to prove they are still ill enough to qualify for financial help, their funding is removed, even if they have received the money for years and their condition is deteriorated. Figures from Freedom of Information requests to local health authorities indicate a 272% rise in the number of people being stripped of funding. In the worst cases, elderly people face draining their bank accounts to pay for the care they need. Those who can't are being moved to cheaper nursing homes. The controversy centres around something called NHS Continuing Healthcare, CHC for short. Funding. This payment, typically of around £1,000 a week, is awarded to people with complex, severe or unpredictable health needs to pay for their care. The rules around who qualifies are vague and just one in three who apply receive the payouts. If funding is granted, the care recipient is usually reassessed annually. A panel reconsiders the person's needs under 12 points ranging from whether they can communicate or continent and can move and feed themselves. NHS bosses say they must check the sick person is getting the right care, but funding can also be withdrawn if the person no longer meets the right criteria. Any care recipient with assets of more than £23,250 must then cover the costs of face being moved to a cheaper home. Fears are growing that health bosses are taking a hard-line approach that is hitting people with degenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and motor neuron disease. NHS England has asked clinical commissioning groups, CCG, for short, the bodies in charge of healthcare in local areas to cut £855 million from their CHC and NHS funded nursing care budgets by 2021. Experts say it is often unclear how decisions to remove funding are being made. They say some patients are having it removed if their condition is under control. Martina Louis-Jao, Senior Policy Advisor at Parkinson's UK, says forcing people with degenerative conditions to be reassessed for CHC is monstrous. It is a scandal that funding is being removed. The cutbacks threaten to cost Pauline Sutton Harvey, a 79-year-old dementia sufferer, her care home place. For 25 years, Pauline was a much-loved teacher in Sheffield. Today, she is unable to talk, walk and struggles to stand. She is doubly incontinent and is fed only liquids. It is difficult to imagine how her health needs could be any greater. But three weeks ago, Pauline's family learned she had been reassessed and her CHC funding was being removed. She faces paying £1,000 a week to stay at Woodland View, the advanced dementia care home where she has spent three years. Local healthcare bosses have already planned Pauline's move to another nursing home in the city, which has been rated as requiring improvement until her sons David and Richard found out and intervened. They fear the impact of any move on their mother, who lost her husband Jack in January, and are appealing the decision. Pauline has been allowed to stay for now.
David 57, an accountant, says, We were delivered when we heard. We've not received any proper answer from the local health authority. How can they argue she is less ill than three years ago and her knees don't longer qualify for funding? Our mother paid into the system all her life when she needs help and is no longer there. Article goes on. All residents of Pawnee's nursing home, as well as another nearby for dementia sufferers, have been told they will be reassessed. So far, four residents are understood to have lost their CHC funding. Like Pauline, they face the prospect of being forced to move to another care home which their families fear may not cater specifically for their needs. Or they or their families face dipping into savings or selling property to cover the fees. Sue Harding, an ex-civil servant campaigning for the families, says many are not sleeping or eating and it is heartbreaking to see them worry. A man in his 90s comes in daily to help feed his wife. He looks at me with tears in his eyes and said they are torturing us with this. Data supplied by the CCGs that responded to our Freedom of Information requests show numbers receiving CHC soared from 30,100 to 72,612 between 2013 and 2016, a 140% rise. But those having the payout removed rose more sharply from 593 in 2013 to 2211 in 2016 a 272% increase. It is unclear how many had degenerative illnesses, but experts say roughly two-thirds of people who receive CHC suffer from one. Last year, the National Order Office revealed that since March 2015, people have been receiving CHC funding for shorter periods. It said this mainly because people only get funding in the final few months of life or because more payments are being cancelled. Why do they only get it in the final few months of life? Alzheimer's sufferer Jean Chipperfield finally received CHC funding in 2012 after three attempts. But in 2016, Great Yarmouth and Waveney Clinical Commissioning Group said that Jean's health needs were not great enough to justify the funding. She died just months later. Jean's son Mark, a 54-year-old data manager, used the funding to create a team of carers to help his mother stay at home. He was forced to drain a bank account to pay for nursing care in her last days. Mark from St Albans says, My mother died unfunded and uncared for by the NHS with this fearing about the future when her own funds ran out. Mum's conditions were clearly impacting her far more than in 2012. It was totally unacceptable to remove the security of funding later on. Incidents where Great Yarmouth and Waveney CCG removed CHC payments rose by 468% between 2013 and 2016. Rebecca Hume, Chief Nurse with NHS Great Yarmouth and Waveney CCG, says funding recipients are assessed annually by a nurse and social worker. If a patient's care needs or presentation is changed between reviews, this may affect whether they still meet the criteria for CHC. A Sheffield CCG spokesman says reassessments are taking place across the city to update records and check whether patients' needs have changed and if they are receiving the right care. An NHS England spokesman says spending on continuing health care is going up as more people are being supported, but within the national rules it's then up to local health services to decide who is eligible. Well, it's interesting when you look at it that, as I said in the previous episode of Pay-Per-View, there's always money when the elite's global agenda demands it, and there's always money for war. How many times does a political leader say we can't go to war because we can't afford it, but homeless people, no, can't afford that. They can't afford to give people funding for the basics of life, but they can afford to invade and bomb the crap out of countries to suit their own agenda, their own geopolitical agenda. And the point that needs to be made, especially with this second story today, is that there's two ways of looking at this. You can look at it from the point of view of incompetence, that there's people in government who don't know what they're doing, and they're just, they think they're making the best decisions, but actually it's, those decisions are fundamentally flawed. Those people don't exist in government, of course they do. 
you know, the, the elite's global agenda would not be able to function if everybody in government knew what they were contributing to. It's only a tiny few actually, you know. Even then, they, they won't know. Some of them might, but chances are even those that know what they're doing in government coldly, calculatedly know what they're doing. They will only know the role they're playing as much as they need to know to do that. Compartmentalization. If you want to control the world, you need a structure to do it. And compartmentalization, or what's called the need to know basis, is how it's done. You look at any organization and it's structured as a pyramid. The tiny few at the top know how the whole thing works and they know why ultimately decisions are made. They know the future plan direction of the organization. And then as you come down from the top of the pyramid, you meet more and more and more people who know less and less and less about what that organization is really about and where it's going and why it's going there. That's the structure of global society for the reason of control and keeping people in the dark about what they're really contributing to and keeping the public at large in the dark about where human society is going and why. As I said, it's not incompetence. Ultimately, it's cold calculation to create this hunger games society. People have got to start realizing the scale of evil that is directing human society. Because if they don't, then they will believe that the way to solve the problem is just to elect different people into government. Except for the fact that the agenda continues no matter who's in power and who's in government. But if you believe that it's incompetence and you see it at that level, and that's how it's presented to us, then you will think that the answer is just electing different people and the problem solved. Well, why hasn't it been solved? If that was the case, why have we still got the problems we've had? It's all part of creating this hunger game society. I, I was in Manchester a few weeks ago with a, a friend of mine and the number of homeless people we saw is incredible to think. In just the, the area we were in, I was sent a photo by someone on Facebook the other day here in Bristol where I live of someone homeless waiting for an ambulance. And there's a homeless guy who sleeps outside a library close to where I live in Bristol, in the town where I live. We've seen nothing yet. And what we've seen with the financial crash of 2008 and the situation in Cyprus that we had, where we had the bail-in, where money from people's bank accounts can be raided to save the banks. And to put it very simply, if you're not part of this elite 1%, they want your money too. Simple as that. When I say the plan is for a three-tier society where you have the elite and you have everyone else, I mean everyone else in the world in poverty. And stories like the two I've read out today are another step on the road to that, but they're only a step on the road. They're not the end of the road. Far from it. And when you look at stories like Alzheimer's sufferers and other people who were in situations where they have to prove that they're unfit for work when they clearly are to receive funding and receive benefits. It should, although I don't think it does for everybody because they just see it as incompetence rather than the cold calculated imposition of the latest stage on the stepping stones towards the completion of an agenda, a very sinister agenda, by an extraordinarily few people, ultimately. It should bring home the psychopathic, empathy-deprived mentality and mindset running our world and running human society. People, vast numbers of people anyway, are clueless about that fact. And we have to at some point move beyond the idea that it's just incompetence and if you get the right people in government we're going to be fine and everything's going to be okay. Well, you look at the problems that the human race has faced 
over generations and why has that not yet happened and also the point that needs making is that even if you did get the right people in government they're only there for a certain amount of years and then you could have the mentality they replace coming back into government again so even if you get the right people in government it could only be temporary before you have the same mindset back in government again that you voted to replace we have to move beyond the idea of voting to change things it won't the people have to take the initiative to change our world because no one else is going to do it and when you look at the system of money that we have it's incredible that this is a system that decides whether people eat or have shelter and the basics of life or they don't money obviously there's a lot to know about the money system but to keep it simple because it is very simple ultimately when you go into a bank and you deposit money in the bank say fifty thousand pounds the bank doesn't move precious metal anywhere it doesn't move anything physical it types into your account credit 50,000 on a computer screen or whatever the currency is depending on what country you're in that's it and from that moment you have theoretical money credit in your account which is just figures on a screen now if you take out a loan of 50,000 pounds it's the same principle the bank types in on the computer that you've taken out a loan of 50,000 which is, which is only figures on a screen and from that moment you start owing not just the loan but interest on $50,000 that has never, does not, and will never exist. Numbers on a screen. And if you can't pay that back, then the banks can take your wealth that does exist. Your car, your business, your home, your land, for not being able to pay back money that they've typed in on a computer screen that doesn't exist. This is how ludicrous the whole system of money is, but it is the fundamental driving force of human society in the sense that it decides whether people have the basics for life or don't, and therefore live or die. Why can't governments print their own units of exchange, interest-free, and circulate it among the population, therefore it does the job it's supposed to do, which is to be a unit of exchange to overcome the problems of barter. That's all money should be, that's it, it's just a unit of exchange. You see, the money in and of itself is not a problem. It's the system of money that's the problem. And when you are a global elite and you own a global financial system and you move trillions of units of exchange around every day so you can decide what happens with the global financial system if you want to do anything whether it's a global collapse like we had in 2008 or whether it's a particular country's currency whatever you decide what happens because you are you are moving the, the most money around by quite a margin so you decide what happens and when you look at the fact that people, as I said just now, have to pay back not just the original amount that, that, that they took the loan out for, but also the interest. The interest is also theoretical. The interest is not created even as credit. So what it means is when you follow the trail through from person to person, business to person, business to business, etc., of loans and the trail of money, it means that there's never ever enough units of exchange in circulation to pay back what needs paying back. And that's not by accident, that's by design. Debt is control. If you can get people in debt, that means they have to serve the system just to survive. And that's perfect for an elite that wants to control the world. So there's two articles there 
to start with today, which are of this Hunger Games society, and it's coldly calculated, and we've seen nothing yet. And how many times do you hear a politician say they're going to take on the banks? How many times do you hear a politician talking about how the money system really works? How many times do you hear a politician or a potential political leader or a political leader pledging to fundamentally reorganize the distribution of units of exchange within a country? I can't remember hearing it myself. Voting is not going to change problems like homelessness. Voting is not going to change this massive imbalance of wealth. And we've seen nothing yet, like I said, as far as that's concerned. Overall, ultimately, there's a tiny few people running this world, and there is billions of people who are going to be subjected to the full scale of this agenda and are, are being subjected to it every day as far as it's got uh, to this point. Not just money, but the global agenda in general. The people have to bring an end to this, and it's through cooperation with the system and the agenda. When I say the system, I mean the establishment and the political class, and that in society which advances this agenda. The system is held in place by our acquiescence and our cooperation. Remove that, the system and thus the agenda must fall. On that subject, there's a positive story after these first two stories. This is in the Daily Mail again. The British couple who cost Google 2.1 billion pounds. Entrepreneurs took on internet giant because their website was downgraded in his search results. This is something that's happening. Um, you've got Google, and this goes into the control of information that was referred to as the memory hole in George Orwell's 1984 that I mentioned earlier. Google is, and has been for a while now, downgrading search results. In other words... They've got algorithms that they create, and an algorithm is basically a series of code you create, and once you create it, the system, the computer, the device, whatever it is that is using that algorithm, will then run it on its own from that point on. Once you activate the algorithm after you've created it for the first time, from that point it will run itself and it will do whatever the code is telling it to do. And what Google is doing is creating algorithms to push down information in search results that could expose the system that could expose what's really going on that could expose the establishment government etc world events changes in society and people are not getting the chance to come across information in the way that they should unless you know specifically what you're looking for but story goes on. A British couple who took Google to court for competition abuse and cost it £2.1 billion pounds was spoken out for the first time. Adam, 51, and Siobhan Raff, 49, from Crowthorne, Berkshire, left their job to set up price comparison website Fandom, designed to hit the parts of the internet Google couldn't reach, or, for some parts of it, is intentionally not promoting. In 2005, they told Wired magazine, but within days of launching in June 2006, they said they noticed they were being penalized by Google and downgraded for every search except its own name. Contacting Google repeatedly yielded nothing. Then, in December 2008, Foundum was named the UK's top comparison site by Channel 5's The Gadget Show. They believed this would validate their argument to Google, but the tech giant still refused to cooperate. It was clear that we'd have to go to war, Mr. Raff told Wired. That was the point where we said to ourselves, fuck this. Google of bullies, this is wrong, we are going to win, his wife added. I've said before in pay-per-view, Google is a monster. It's involved not just in the control of information, but it's fundamentally involved in the transhumanism agenda, which I've talked about before, connecting humanity to technology, which then controls human thinking. That's not just me saying that, that's the way they're selling it. 
they're selling it in a, a positive light, I would suggest from the information I've come across and the information I've looked at about transhumanism. It's not about humans enhancing their thinking. It's about the end of human thinking, the end of human perception, because they say, and this is even openly talked about by people like Ray Kurzweil of Google, Ray Kurzweil, who says that eventually he writes books about this as well, and he does presentations, interviews, etc. Eventually, artificial intelligence will do all human thinking, and it won't be human thinking by then, it'll be artificial intelligence thinking. The question I don't see asked is, what is this artificial intelligence? Should we not be aware of that first before we go letting it do all our thinking? Anyway, Google is a monster. Google are behind robotics, which is taking ever-increasing numbers of jobs, and we've seen nothing yet as far as that goes. They're creating robots that look very similar to robots, and maybe this is what they're de developing them for. Robots that are there for law enforcement and such like. They are involved, obviously, as this story talks about, in downgrading search results, and people get their perceptions from information, which is what this is all about. If you can change the information people come across, you ensure they will have the perceptions you want. And this, of course, is why the mainstream media is as it is. And education is welcome to that. If only it was education. If only it was a media. Google is a monster. And where Mr. Raff says here in the article, Google are bullies, he's absolutely right. They're a monster. The article goes on. After a year of complaining, Google finally whitelisted the site, which saw their traffic from the search engine jump up by around 10,000%. But they'd seen how Google was strangling rivals and boosting its own price comparison service, originally called Frugal, but later rebranded Google Product Search. Oh, well, that's a creative name. To the top of search results. So they took their case to the European Commission for Competition in Brussels. The RAFs were the first plaintiffs in a case that later included Yelp, TripAdvisor, Expedia and Deutsche Telekom. Finally, on June 27, 2017, Margaret Vestager, the European Commissioner for Competition, ruled that Google abused its market dominance and handed the tech giant a £2.1 billion fine, the biggest antitrust penalty ever issued to a single company. But despite waiting 11 long years, the couple said they didn't celebrate their victory, but say the fight was worth it. If you embark on something like this, you can't really be a victory or despair personality because you'd burn out, Mrs. Raff said. Mr. Raff added, it would have been wrong to back out, so we just did the right thing. If only more people did that without any other consideration, just doing the right thing because it is the right thing. That would massively contribute towards changing the world. Absolutely fundamental. The European Commission's judgment is being appealed by Google, so the RAF civil lawsuit is still potentially years from being resolved. There's another section to this article where it says, What is Foundum, the UK-based tech startup which took on Google and won? Foundum was set up in 2005 by husband and wife co-founders Adam and Siobhan Raff. The couple hoped to transform a web search where you simply clicked on a link and it sent you to your website of choice into a place which could direct shoppers to its website, which compares prices for the best online deals for goods, such as TVs or flights. Mr. Raff had graduated Edinburgh University with a degree in computer science and spent 15 years at the cutting edge of high-performance computing, while his wife also amassed more than a decade's worth of experience managing complex software development projects for blue-chip companies. Their combined experience gave them the perfect platform to launch Foundum to progress into a fully developed technology along with just one additional developer. Foundum's unique technology allowed it to compete across a broad spectrum of different product searches, including product price comparison and travel search, 
with just a tiny fraction of the resources of its competitors. In December 2008, for example, the gadget shell, the UK's leading technology television programme, tested the UK's 12 leading price comparison sites and named Fandom the best. In September 2009, the UK's leading consumer body, Witch, tested the UK's leading flight search engines and placed Fandom third. But with the creation of Google Shopping, which does not offer customers the best deal, but it's just another pay-for-placement ad channel, Fandom was wiped out of the market. Google is a monster. It's the best way to describe them. Apart from being a search engine, there's very little else they do that is actually beneficial for humanity. But what can seem to be an untouchable organization can be taken on. And if you have a bit of tenacity back then and you refuse to give in, you can come out on top because it's only the people who allow these things to happen. Yes, Google is a multi-billion pound corporation. Yes, it's a monster, but the people have the power because there's far more of us. If people stopped engaging with Google at all, or as much as they possibly can. Google dominates search engines, but there are other search engines out there and there's other ways also to disengage with Google. If people did that, people would see the power that we have. This whole global agenda on the system, which imposes it and administers it, would come crashing down if people had the backbone and the motivation and the information necessary to do that. Fear and ignorance that's what it is. That's what it comes down to. But backbone, motivation and information is the way out of it. And this story about a British couple with Google is a wonderful example of that. If they can do it, anybody can. And it applies not just to Google, but human society in general. Talking about the backbone, the complete opposite here. We're back to the Zionism, which I've talked about a couple of times on pay-per-view. And we're back to political correctness and... We're back also to people giving in to threats in terms of being concerned with how they look to others or what will happen if they don't. These, these Zionist anti-hate groups which talk about hate and act with hate against their targets. This is what they do, they threaten. But if you've got backbone and you stand firm, it doesn't matter whether people attack you, whether it's Zionists, whether it's progressives, whether it's political correctness, zealots. It ain't going to work if you stand firm. But in this story, we've got the opposite of that. This is in the Independent. Virgin Atlantic removes Palestinian from in-flight dish description after complaints from Israel supporting customers. Virgin Atlantic has changed the name of an in-flight meal after social media backlash from pro-Israel supporters. The dish, a mix of maftal and other couscous, tomatoes and cucumbers seasoned with parsley, mint and lemon vinaigrette, was formerly called Palestinian couscous salad on the menu. However, the name has since been changed to Couscous Salad after various complaints. Some social media users threatened to boycott the airline, accusing the Virgin of being terrorist sympathizers. However, the name has since been changed to Couscous Salad after various complaints. Some social media users threatened to boycott the airline, accusing Virgin of being terrorist sympathizers. Danny Williams tweeted a picture of the menu in December 2017, writing Virgin Atlantic. This is the menu I received yesterday. Nothing like some BDS and delusionment with your salad. Last time you get my money. Hashtag terrorist sympathizers. Anthony Den tweeted, Bearing in mind Jews have lived on the land you say they now occupy for it for 3,000 years. Maybe it should be called Jewish salad. Meanwhile, David Garnelas posted a picture of the menu in the Israel Advocacy Movement Facebook group with a caption, Virgin Atlantic. 
I thought this was an Israeli salad. Obviously, Bratz is showing his true colours. Israelis must boycott Virgin and Israel must ask for an explanation when I complained the stewardess tried to take back the menu from me. Despite the fact that the salad features maftor, a traditional Palestinian grain made from bulgur and whole wheat flour, Virgin Atlantic has removed the reference in its in-flight menu. The airline said in a statement, our customers' experience on board is a key focus and we are constantly refreshing our food offerings on our flights. We recently introduced a maftor salad on board our flights. It includes a mix of maftor and other couscous complemented by tomatoes and cucumber seasoned with parsley mint and lemon vinaigrette. We were aware that maftor is not a widely known ingredient, so the dish was listed as a Palestinian couscous salad and later as a couscous salad. We'd like to reassure all customers that our sole intention was to bring new flavours on board and never to cause offence through the naming or renaming of the dish. <sighs> I don't know. Apologies. Again. Anyway, the article goes on. The dish's name change has caused further controversy as many people express their discomfort with the decision on social media. You can't get more Palestinian cuisine than maftor, couscous, national Palestinian dish tweeted Bassam Mansour. Virgin should not have caved in to falsification of the name of the Palestinian cuisine to please twisted and hateful passengers. Virgin is morally culpable. Lexi Alexander tweeted, No objection to the German chocolate cake though, which I swear is not German at all. Unlike Maftou Lekki, Couscous Salah, which is super, super Palestinian. That's an interesting point there. If that had been any other country in the world, apart from Palestine or Israel, there'd be no problem. Why is it that Israel has to be represented in the way that Israel demands, even though it attacks people for supporting Palestinians' right to land that Israel is destroying constantly? And why is it that when anyone that criticizes the Israeli government, the Zionist hate groups, the anti-hate hate groups, come down on them like a ton of bricks? If any other country in the world was doing what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, in Gaza and in the West Bank, there would be sanctions, there would be calls to invade the country, there would be criticism from political leaders, Western leaders. None of that happens with Israel. Why? Well, as I've said before, Israel is the fiefdom of the Rothschilds is their own personal country. Israel equals Rothschild. They totally own and control Israel. The Prime Minister of Israel is always a Rothschild Zionist, as is the leader of Britain and America, always a Rothschild Zionist. If you criticise Israel, you're a politician, you're not going to make it any further up the greasy pole. And if you're a leader, you're not going to be a leader for very long if you criticise Israel. This is why it so rarely happens. The last time a president or prime minister, Britain and America, criticised Israel and asked questions that are never asked by leaders of Britain and America. I can't remember it myself because the Rothschilds control Israel as they control, ultimately, the British establishment, the American establishment. So Israel is never criticised, and it absolutely should be. It should be a fundamental debate, politically. And also, you've got the fact that with Donald Trump in power now, you've got possibly America's most Zionist president ever, and think of the competition. Israel is, while Trump is in power, going to be able to get away with anything. It's going to go to a new level under Trump. What life must already be like for the Palestinians and what it's going to be like, I can only imagine. In contrast to the story I read before this article, Virgin Atlantic caved in and apologised and removed the word Palestinian from the in-flight menu. How many people actually flying with Virgin Atlantic would have any problem whatsoever with the word Palestinian being on the menu? Only a tiny few, but it's those 
few, and it usually is only a few that cause a caving in by people or an organization or a corporation and an apology. It's incredible, really. And just on what is mentioned here, the idea of boycotting Israel in certain ways, not least refusing to buy products. I think that is a great idea myself because what is the most fundamental way to cut off support for a country? Cut off the money going into the country. So refusing to purchase any products that originate in Israel is a great way to do that. That's just one way to do it. And the way to find out whether a product originates in Israel is to check the barcode, the first few numbers of the barcode. I've read that it's changed at one point from one set of numbers to another, so that's something to be aware of if you are going to do that. But it's a very effective way to boycott the country and by moving there some of the money going into the country and how much money depends on how many people do it. I'm going to change subject now. This is in the Daily Mail. Google patents creepy Big Brother style system that uses cameras and sensors to watch your kids and tell them off when they've been misbehaving. Google could be making Big Brother style smart home technology to discipline your children so you don't have to. A dystopian patent filed by the company suggests smart homes of the future could monitor naughtier members of the household with cameras, microphones, motion sensors and thermal imaging. The Google Home System could use this real-time information to decide if the person in question is misbehaving and needs telling off. In another patent, Google described a device that would give advice to parents for areas of improvement, such as spending more time with their children at supper. When children are near a drinks cabinet or are in their parents' bedroom alone, the system may infer that mischief is likely to be occurring, the patient read. On detecting mischievous behaviour, the smart device could even hand out punishments, such as restricting mobile phone use, writes the Times. It could also notify parents remotely of the children's bad behaviour. It could also monitor chore completion of a quarter when certain people fail to take out the rubbish after being asked. Infrared sensors may record body temperatures and the system could also understand the meaning of sound, such as laughter and crying. It may be beneficial to monitor the emotional state of occupants in the household, the patent read. Filed in 2015, the patent was only recently spotted by Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Tucker Carlson is one of those rare people in the mainstream media who actually asks questions that need asking and makes points that need making. He's doing a great job on Fox News, which doesn't apply to many people on Fox News or the media in general, but he is doing a great job on various subjects. He talks to a lot of people in the category of political correctness, but he makes great points on differing subjects. In another patent spotted in 2016, the company showed a smart device that is able to spot a godfather novel by the user's bed. The information can be used to steer people to watching the film on TV later that night. Google told Fox News, We file patent applications on a variety of ideas that our employees come up with. Some of these ideas later mature into real products or services, some don't. Google declined to comment when asked for a mail online. Well, see, the thing is about Google, as I said earlier, is that it's a monster, and it's not so much its decision as Google creating, developing technology that advances the agenda. If it advances the agenda, they'll do it. That's more or less the policy of what gets matured into our products or services and doesn't, in, to, to quote Google in this quote to Fox News. At the end of last year, patent applications by Amazon and Google revealed ways their voice assistant powered smart speakers could already be spying on people. The findings were published in a report created by Santa Monica, California-based advocacy group Consumer Watchdog. It says patents revealed the device's 
possible use as surveillance equipment for massive information collection and intrusive digital advertising. The study found that digital assistants can be awake even when users think they aren't listening. The digital assistants are supposed to react only when they hear a so-called wake word. John Simpson, Consumer Watchdog's Privacy and Technology Project Director, said at the time, Google and Amazon executives want you to think that Google Home and Amazon Echo are there to help you out of the sound of your voice. In fact, they're all about snooping on you and your family in your home and gathering as much information on your activities as possible. You might find them useful sometimes, but think about what you're revealing about yourself and your family and how that information might be used in the future. Instead of charging you for these surveillance devices, Google and Amazon should be paying you to take one into your head or just not creating the surveillance and data gathering devices in the first place. This, of course, comes back to the surveillance big brother part of Orwell's 1984. And I mentioned earlier, for what this technology do, the idea that children are, and other people in the house, but this article talks about children, for what this technology can do, see an episode of Black Mirror. Black Mirror does a great job of portraying what could go wrong with the technology. And when you look at the episodes, it's well within the bounds of possibility that what is in the episodes could happen. It's not fantasy. It's well within the bounds of possibility. But there's one episode I saw relevant to this article, and it was a brilliant portrayal of what could happen if you surveil kids too much, and if you try to wrap them in cotton wool. It was not quite what this article was talking about. It was more intrusive than that, but it was the concept of surveilling and mollycoddling kids. Surveilling and mollycoddling kids, rather than just letting them be kids. It was brilliantly portrayed in this episode, which is called Archangel. Black Mirror, Series 4, Archangel. I recommend watching it. Another effect this is going to have, as well as the effect that it has in that episode, is for some kids, it's going to get them used to the idea of being surveilled. And when you come into the world, when you first become aware of what's around you, you take what's around you as the way things are. This is just how it is. This is the way things are done. This is normal. And this is why people older than young people today are well-placed to point out that the world we live in now is not always the way the world was. And if people continue to do what they've done about the world we live in and the direction the world is going in five, ten years from now, then it will be the same again. If people continue to do what they've always done about it, the vast majority, which is nothing, then five, ten years from now, even less than that, we will have a very different world again than we have now. It's down to the people, because authority's not going to do it, government's not going to do it. It's up to the people to make a difference. Because there's far more of us than there are of those knowingly bringing in this agenda. There's far more of us than those in power. And so I think I see an obvious solution to this. Or far more effective removing the cause of the problem, which is the fact that the whole structure is only held together by our cooperation and acquiescence. If we remove that, then it all comes crashing down. You'll notice that pay-per-view is in two parts this week. Rather than giving people one extra long episode to listen to, they won't break it into two parts and then people can choose when they listen to either one. But it poses a question. What does it say about where we are now that that is the case? And just a point about Big Brother of 1984. Many people who talk about Big Brother see it as just surveillance and data tracking. And that's important in that it's happening. But there's a bigger picture behind the 1984 world that we're seeing unfold around us, even if we didn't realise it. Many people don't, of course. There's a bigger picture behind these different elements of that world. And that's what I'm pointing out in pay-per-view this week. So I hope you've enjoyed part one. There's far more in part two.